Welcome to the 65th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series entitled The Thief Who Stole My Heart, The Material Life of Chola Bronzes from South India, circa 855 to 1280, art historian Vidya Deheja discusses the work of artists of Chola, India, who created exceptional bronzes of the god Shiva, invoked as Thief Who Stole My Heart. Graceful, luminous sculptures of high copper content portrayed the deities as sensuous figures of sacred import. Every bronze is a portable image carried through temple and town to participate in celebrations that combine the sacred with the joyous atmosphere of carnival. In these lectures, Deheja discusses the images as tangible objects that interact in a concrete way with human activities and socio-economic practices. She asks questions of this body of material that have never been asked before, concerning the source of wealth that enabled the creation of bronzes, the origin of copper not available locally, the role of women patrons, the strategic position of the Chola Empire at the center of a flourishing ocean trade route between Aden and China, and the manner in which the Cholas covered the walls of their temples with thousands of inscriptions, converting them into public record offices. These sensuous portrayals of the divine gained their full meaning with critical study of information captured through a variety of lenses. In this fourth lecture, entitled An 11th Century Master Sculptor, 10,000 Pearls Adorn a Bronze, originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art on April 24, 2016, Professor Deheja describes how a master sculptor of the early 11th century worked in wax to create spectacular bronzes for a temple at Tiruvenkadu along the Bay of Bengal, and highlights the fact that royalty had no hand in these commissions. Drawing on the many epigraphs inscribed on Emperor Rajaraja's great temple at Thanjavur, it examines the rich jewellery created entirely to adorn the bronze images and questions whether the Chola's obsession with pearls motivated them to annex Sri Lanka. Today we will be spending our time entirely in the 11th century in Chola, India, looking at some superb bronzes and at jewellery, jewels that were created to adorn the bronze. So can we start by Stepping back in time, come with me briefly to the year 1010 at dawn. In the small coastal village of Tirvangadu along the Bay of Bengal, where the river Kaveri enters the ocean, a master sculptor stirs the wax and resin that is bubbling in a large pot. He's carefully preparing the mixture for the image he's going to model. And he thinks back to his conversation two days ago with the commander of a select military regiment of the Chola King Rajaraja. The commander had sought him out, cash in hand, to ask him to create a majestic bronze image of Shiva leaning against his bell mount, bull mount. Yes, the master would make Shiva majestic, but he just couldn't forget the hymn of child Saint Samandar, who addressed Shiva as thief who stole my heart. 
and the master resolves to make his image of Shiva the ultimate heart stealer who would captivate one and all. So this image, dedicated in the year 1011, is his resulting masterpiece. Elegantly poised to rest his weight on his left foot, his right foot bent at the knee and crossed in front, lightly resting his toes on the ground, this bronze Shiva, three and a half feet tall, is quite bewitching in its beauty. Shiva's left hand rests elegantly on his hip. The right is bent to place his elbow upon his now missing bull. The firm tone of his light body gives him a commanding presence. The barest hint of a smile about his lush lips transforms him into an accessible figure whom the devotee may confidently approach. Here, our master abandoned the usual mode of portraying Shiva with his matted locks piled high upon his head, as we have encountered thus far. Instead, he created a piece that is uniquely charismatic. Taking the length of Shiva's dreadlocks, the master wound them around his head to create the effect of an elegant turban. Just the serpent hood and the top of the trumpet flower emerge above his locks. And do look at the way he positioned the crescent moon while he was modeling in wax so that it weaves under and over one of his dreadlocks. The face framed by the usual diadem carries a serene contemplative look. His third eye adorns his forehead. He wears a large circular ring in one ear, while the other ear remains unadorned. We are reminded again of child saint Samandar's hymn describing the thief who stole his heart as wearing a earring in one ear only. Firm-shouldered Shiva wears three necklaces, a Brahmanical sacred thread. His narrow torso is emphasized by a high waistband. His short dhoti, which is slung well below the navel, is held in place by an elaborate jeweled belt with a lion head clasp, while fabric bands rest as looped curves below the flask. Completing his adornment is an elbow band, a wristband, anklet, rings on eight fingers and eight toes, with only the middle finger and middle toe left ringless. Seen from the rear, the image is, if anything, even more enchanting in its sensuous elegance and reveals the master's unmistakable touch. It's unfortunate that we do not have this master's name. We must refer to him only as the master of Tirvangadu, whose Shiva temple housed several of his masterpieces. It's rare for Chola bronzes to be securely dated. But at Thurangadu, we're fortunate in having several inscriptions on temple walls and base moldings that provide information about donors and their gifts. None of these inscriptions has been translated into English. And even a complete Tamil version is not available in print or online. You simply have to make a trip to the offices of the Epigraphical Survey of India in the town of Mysore to get access either to the original rubbings taken from the temple walls 
or to a hand-transcribed copy. In the case of our glorious Shiva, a partly damaged inscription dated to the year 1011 informs us that it was set up by a military chief who belonged to a select military regiment known by the name of Emperor Rajaraja, who ruled from 985 to 1012. The donor, a certain Kadamban, came from a town located a mere eight miles away. The inscription tells us also that this military chief was now making a gift of jeweled ornaments to adorn his bronze. Damage to the stone of the inscription deprives us of details about these jewels, but we may be sure they were sumptuous. And we will turn shortly to jewelry given to adorn bronzes that are already adorned in the medium of bronze. So the bronze masterpiece, is not a royal commission. It's a gift from an official of high stature who had the wherewithal to commission an image from our master of Thiruvangadu. The companion image of Uma, who always accompanies Lord Shiva, stands in serene elegance just over three feet tall. Gracefully poised in the triple bend contrapposto, her oval face with its diadem is topped with a tall conical crown, while at the rear is a halo-like circle of glory. Her long skirt clings to her legs. It's slung way below the navel, held in place with belts ending in a decorative clasp. Part of the fabric of the wrap skirt is pulled into a pleated fold that rests along her left hip while the other end of the fabric forms loops closely similar to those on Shiva's dhoti. Her slender torso with its gently rounded breasts is adorned with three necklaces. A sacred thre thread snakes its way between her breasts. She wears elaborate armlets whose design resembles the decorative motif in front of her crown and a simple elbow band, a cluster of bangles, rings on eight fingers and toes. The distinctive treatment of the hands and of the ringed fingers and the gently rounded fingernails are among the signature touches of our master. An inscription dated to the year 1012 contains intriguing information about the joint donation of this copper image of the goddess Uma to accompany Shiva as Lord with the Bull. The gift was coordinated by a certain Lord Sarpan, who ensured that 11 other individuals contributed their share towards the expenses involved in commissioning this image of Uma, as also of the bull, to accompany the Shiva created the previous year. The inscription is damaged again along its central segment this time, and yet it clearly indicates that 11 individuals commissioned the bronze. Immediately thereafter, in the same year of 1012, another chieftain donated a three-stringed gold chain for this image of Uma and a gold flower to be placed on the knotted locks of Shiva when the bronze lord, I quote, took pleasure in his sacred bath, referring to the ritual bathing of the bronze. There's been a tendency to assume that the finest works of art owe their origin to royal sponsorship, an all too easy assumption. 
But frequently, as with the evocative bronzes we are looking at right now, this proves not to be the case. It's intriguing to note that a bronze of Shiva with the bull commissioned by Raja Raja's queen, Chola Mahadevi, for the royal temple at Tanjavur is actually only half the size of this Tirvangadi masterpiece. Widely acknowledged as representing the very finest of Chola bronzes, this image was among the works of art displayed at the National Gallery in the 1985 Sculpture of India exhibition. And God Shiva in the enchanting form in which you now gaze at him graced both front and rear covers of that catalog. Commissioned 1,005 years ago for a Shiva temple in coastal Tirvangadu, these bronzes are part of a treasure trove unearthed from the grounds of the temple. Their striking green patina testifies to their long-term burial underground a mystery that we will unravel in our very last meeting. The superb artistry of our master sculptor is seen also in this sensitive four-piece bronze group representing the divine marriage of Shiva and Uma that we considered in our very first meeting as an introduction to the art of the Chola bronze. God Vishnu far right stands by to serve as the officiating priest at their wedding ceremony. Vishnu's consort, Lakshmi, far left, acts as Uma's friend and confidant. A couple of comments from that first lecture that bear repetition. Notice the manner in which the master has positioned a shy Uma to stand hesitantly a few steps behind the confident bridegroom, with her shoulders curving gently inwards as if to shield her body. She presents a contrast to the confident consort of Shiva with the bull whom we just looked at. And consider the empathy displayed by the master in his portrayal of the confidant's understanding of the bride's diffidence. She uses both her hands to gently urge Uma to move closer to Shiva. Together with lotus base and lower pedestal, bridegroom Shiva and Uma would have been the same size as Shiva with the bull and his consort. Both sets of images would have stood over four feet tall, and that means coming about to my armpit. When carried in procession through temple and town, their imposing grandeur would indeed have struck wondrous reverence into devotees. I'd like to introduce you to two more images of God Shiva from the hands of our master sculptor. Both, together with lotus base and pedestal, would have been around four feet high. Shiva as enchanting mendicant. This is a form truly beloved of Shiva devotees in Tamil Nadu. The exhilarating yet sensitive treatment of the naked beggar is profoundly haunting. In this manifestation, Shiva wandered the Tamil country, walking in wooden clogs from village to village and then from home to home, accompanied by his pet antelope and seeking arms in the bowl he holds in his left hand. The Tamil saints whom we have encountered in our previous meetings 
sang of the inexpressible radiance of this form of Shiva, whom they addressed simply as begging Lord, Pichadevar. They described how the women of every household were hopelessly enamored of him. And Saint Sundarar sang eloquently of this paradoxical, even eccentric form of Shiva, placing each verse in the lips of one of the women who came to give him alms. Here's one such verse. What strange attire is this of yours? The music of the Tamil tongue adorns your speech. Meanwhile, the serpent dances on your hand. We bring you arms, but how to give it to you when your serpent hisses? Pray tell us, handsome one of the forests, does not the radiance of your form mock the glory of the setting sun? The saints often used conversational language in their hymns. And the women say to Shiva in everyday common language, when you come for arms, Lord, please don't bring your serpent. <laughs> the phrase is, bali Another hymn by Saint Upper highlights even more dramatically the spell cast by the begging Lord over the women who encounter him. Here's what one woman says to the other. Listen, my friend, yesterday in broad daylight, I'm sure I saw that holy one. As he gazed at me, my garments slipped. I stood entranced. I brought him arms, but nowhere did I see that cunning one. If I see him again, I shall press my body against his body and never let him go, that wanderer who lives in Utriur. Shiva's torso is adorned with three simple necklaces, a Brahmanical sacred thread that divides into two strings, a waistband, while an armlet, elbow band, bangles, and rings on 16 fingers and eight toes adorn his arms and legs. His pet cobra wraps itself about his hips as if to serve as loincloth. But as child saint Samandar playfully sang, the serpent has a mind of its own and fully reveals Shiva's naked form. A tiny detail we could easily miss, but one that the master sculptor wished to portray is the fork tongue of the serpent. Do you see it? It's visible better at a slight angle, and that too only to the oh-so-close looker. I need to ask you to set aside biblical associations with the serpent or with the concept of a forked tongue as duplicitous speech. Such associations are unknown in India, where the cobra is highly revered as Shiva's pet companion and admired by one and all. No one in India, for instance, will condone the killing of a cobra. The attention paid to delineating the fork of the cobra's tongue is only an example of the master's attention to detail. Shiva's matted locks that splay out in halo-like formation around his head in this manifestation are partially held back by his diadem, whose knotted bands are seen on the right and emerging from his locks are the usual serpent crescent moon trumpet flower. 
while adorning the centrally swept upswept blocks is a human skull. And notice it has inset silver eye sockets. The sensitive and delicate treatment of the fingers that curve in plant gestures, that attention to the fingernails, are hallmarks of the Thirumangadu master. And look at the sensuous nature of these tight, rounded buttocks, an altogether invigorating and stimulating image created in the years following the Shiva and Uma of 1011 and 1012. Two inscriptions in this temple, one dated to 1046, another to 1048, speak of several gifts of jewelry to adorn this image. Both inscriptions use the past tense to refer to the original dedication of the begging lord by a certain Amalan, making it clear that our master created this bronze well before the date of these gifts of jewels. Amalan, the donor of the begging lord, was now making a series of new donations to ensure the high visibility of his dedication. What did he do? He combined a range of prior donations to create a dramatic and more expressive series of ornaments of gold and precious stones for the begging lord. The list is extensive. It starts with the enlargement in size of a previously made gold snake. New jeweled covers were made for Shiva's hands and feet. He was given a gold three-string necklace, a gold sacred thread, a gold victory garland with pearls, a choker-style gold neckband, a pearl nose ring, a pearl sacred thread, a low-hanging waistband, a gold skull cup and pot a gold pedestal studded with diamonds, rubies, pearls, corals, and 12 gold flowers. And finally, a gold aureole with gemstones. This was given jointly by Amalan and a lady who supervised the sacred kitchen of the temple. Their relationship is not specified in the inscription. Another powerful creation of the master is this riveting image of Shiva as half-woman, in which Shiva takes his consort Uma's body as one half of himself. Indian myths provide various explanations of the manifestation. Here I will say only that this androgynous form may justifiably be read as an affirmation that the Godhead is both male and female. Divided vertically right down the middle into a female half with a single arm to the right and a male half with two arms on the left, this bronze adopts a more exaggerated triple bend contrapposto than his other images. If we compare the image with the master's Shiva from the marriage group, we appreciate how subtly the distinctions between the male and female halves are expressed. On the male side, matted locks and a broader jawline versus the female softly curved jawline and jeweled crown. A comparison with Uma as consort of Shiva with the bull reveals how the shoulder on the male side is broader compared to the softer curve of the female side. 
The obvious distinction, of course, is the breast and the considerably indented curve of waist and hip on the female side that contrasts with the straighter lines of the male body. So who is responsible for commissioning this spectacular creation by the Tirvangadu master? Sheer dogged determination to work through inscriptions led to the woman who donated this bronze to the temple. A lengthy inscription of 44 lines dated to the year 1047 is devoted to lands donated by the Chola king for various purposes, together with somewhat tedious details on the boundaries of each piece of property. It's only when we get to line 35 that we hear of the king making arrangements for the daily worship of the bronze of Shiva's half-woman that had been installed in the temple by a woman named Tupayan Uttamacholi. To ensure worship of the image for posterity, the king ceded to the temple all taxes from a specified piece of agricultural land. Why would the king take so deep an interest in providing for the image installed by Uttamacholi? She may have been his bogiyar, concubine, or more likely she was his anukiyar, an intimate mistress. This lady donor certainly commissioned the most accomplished master of the day, who doubtless was suitably rewarded for his stunning bronze. The master of Tiruvangadu was active during the reign of Chola King Rajaraja and his son Rajendra. In 985, Rajaraja inherited a small kingdom still centered on the delta of the Kaveri River. But he was soon to change all that and transform the Cholas into a force to be reckoned with. Rajaraja first captured all of South India, forcing the Cheras and Pandyas to accept defeat. He then engaged in battle against the rulers of Sri Lanka and forced them to retreat to the southernmost parts of their island. For a period of 70 years, the larger part of Sri Lanka became a province of the Chola Empire, sending tribute to Rajaraja's treasury. He also captured the many islands of the Maldives to the lower left of the screen. All the lavender-shaded areas were part of the Chola Empire. Having established himself as a matchless warrior in battle, Rajaraja set out to prove that he was an unequal devotee of Shiva and the foremost of temple patrons. At his capital of Tanjavur, he conceived and constructed a temple that was six times the size of any previously built temple along the Kaveri River. It was also taller than any temple built thus far in any part of India. Known just as the Great Temple, the immensity of this ambitious venture can scarcely be overstated. His success in getting architects and sculptors to transform his lofty ambitions into a towering granite structure that reached 210 feet in height speaks volumes for his determination and drive. Rajaraja clearly wished to complement his military prowess with his status as an unparalleled leader in times of peace, a trailblazer who would make his subjects proud to be citizens of the Chola Empire. He was driven, 
What precisely drove him, we do not know. Part of it must surely relate to the shameful battle losses of the previous hundred years. Part may also be attributed to the inspiring example of his great aunt, Queen Shembian, whom we encountered last week. She never allowed what some might have considered mortifying personal circumstances to limit her considerable achievements. Like Queen Shembian, Raja Raja too had this tremendous urge to record in stone along the walls, the base moldings and pillars of his great temple, every detail of temple administration. These records are among the very few Chola inscriptions known in English translation since 1916, a full hundred years ago. They provide details of a type unknown from anywhere else in India. They speak of the amounts of rice that each village within his empire had to contribute to the temple. The name of each village that provided either a temple watchman or a Brahmin priest. The villages that had to supply cardamom pods, champak buds, aromatic root to perfume the bathing water of the bronzes. The number of goats or cows given to specific cowherds who then contracted to provide ghee each day for burning the temple lamps. One extraordinary inscription lists the names and remuneration of 800 temple employees. These include 400 dancing girls who performed for the temple, 12 dance masters, 48 singers of the sacred hymns of the saints, 66 drummers, several other musicians, 11 chief accountants with 41 sub-accountants kept track of temple monies, 174 priests attended to temple ritual, 141 watchmen kept the temple secure. And then there were tailors, jewel stitchers, a superintending goldsmith who served also as appraiser of jewels. An aspect of daily ritual that has not interested others thus far, but that you might find of interest, as I do, relates to Chola temple food. In temples across Chola territory, endowments were made to provide food offerings to the many bronzes that each temple housed. Sacred food was prepared in the temple kitchens, ritually offered to the bronzes, and then distributed to the temple's various stakeholders that included the priests and a range of temple functionaries. And the inscriptions actually go out of their way to specify that the sacred food was indeed to be distributed in this manner after offering to the bronzes. Rajaraja's inscriptions name specific villages in his empire and the exact quantities of the ingredients that they were required to provide for the food offered to the 66 bronze images in this Tanjavur temple. Instead of speaking in generalities, let's turn to the food ingredients listed in a lengthy inscription on the walls of a temple in the coastal belt. Rice, of course, the very basic. A range of vegetables, also basic. And then items like mustard seed, black pepper, cumin, turmeric, ginger, tamarind, jaggery, mango, plantains, jackfruit, and more. 
Special ingredients were added to the list for the two major festivals in March, April, and in October, November. For each festival, the inscription provides a list of the payments to be made to a range of temple servants, all the way from those who would carry the bronzes in procession down to the kitchen and the cleaning staff. By the way, I've not written out the list of, uh, of vegetables, but it does not include potatoes, tomatoes, or chilies. These are items that the Portuguese brought to India from Brazil after 1500. The ingredients listed are strictly indigenous. Black pepper, yes, yes. Chilies, no. All of this food prepared in temple kitchens was offered ritually to the sacred bronzes and then distributed. The remarkable similarity of the ingredients to what would be required in a standard, traditional South Indian kitchen of today speaks of the remarkable persistence of food habits over the past 1,000 years in Tamil Nadu. The standard food then, as today, appears to consist of three courses of rice, all served on a banana leaf. Rice is eaten first with the tamarind-based liquid known as rasam, the bowl on the left. Next comes rice with sambar, the next bowl, in which a thick mixture of lentils is added to the tamarind gravy. This second course is accompanied by a variety of vegetable dishes. Finally, the third course is rice, once again, mixed with yogurt. The sweet was a rice pudding cooked in milk with either jaggery or cane sugar, occasionally with the addition of bananas and coconut. And concluding the meal was the traditional aromatic and digestive offering of beetle leaves rolled around arica nut. An extraordinary passion for jewelry is reflected in the inscriptions on the Tanjavur temple. They provide the most unexpected details of lavish gold jewelry studded with a variety of gems that were created to adorn the temple's bronze images from head to toe. Two measures were used to weigh the ornaments. For gold, a stone measure known as the expert dancer was used. Gemstones were weighed against a stone known as Lord of Sacred Mountain Meru. It probably was the seated form of Shiva and Uma with their infant Skanda between them. 400 items of jewelry are listed in the Tanjavur inscriptions. And I emphasize every one of them was given to adorn one or other of the temple's 66 bronze images. Most bronzes were given complete sets of ornaments anywhere up to 32 items of jewelry. A phenomenal amount of gold was involved, gold which probably came from the famed Kolar gold mines depleted today. It would have been part of Rajaraja's expanded South Indian possessions. The temple's supervisory goldsmith, who was also an appraiser of jewels and obviously a very important temple employee, weighed the gold separately from the gemstones whenever possible. He also separated the weight of the gold from that of the lac and the thread used in making the jewelry. But he included the gold 
eye and hook closures. And such details indicate that individual items were weighed prior to being strung into the jewelry requested by patrons for individual bronzes. As you see from this rear close-up of a bronze, the eye and hook closures were very specifically delineated by the wax modeler, and they emerge clearly in the work of the metal expert. Roger Roger's inscriptions often specify that one or other of his gifts came from treasures seized in military campaigns. For instance, certain gifts that Roger Roger gave immediately after the ritual consecration of the temple were from treasures seized after successful campaigns against the rulers of Kerala and Madurai. The 64 corals used to adorn a victory diadem came from the same campaign. An inscribed gift of an emerald to a large emerald to a temple north of Tanjavur by a victorious general specifies that it was allocated to him by the emperor from the treasures seized in a successful campaign in Kerala, indicating that Raja Raja clearly shared seized booty with those who helped him secure victory. When we add up the gold contained in Raja Raja's gift of jewelry to the sacred bronzes in his temple, we arrive at an amazing total of 590 pounds of gold. I did a little bit of translation of this. At today's price of 22 karat gold per ounce, $1,253 on April 12th, just the gold in these gifts would cost 11.8 million. Well, he was the emperor after all. <laughs> to this, we must add the considerable cost of the thousands of gemstones with which the gold jewelry was studied. I should say that none of the jewels I'm showing you now are of Chola date, but they are South Indian jewelry of a slightly later period. All Chola jewelry is gone. That too, a mystery for the last lecture. A hint to the extraordinary value of gemstones is contained in an inscription of Raja Raja's sister, Kundabai, who gave rich and expensive sets of jewelry to adorn from head to toe the four bronzes that she commissioned. Let's consider the gems contained in a single armlet of a pair that Kundavai gave to an image of Uma. The armlet you see here is almost exclusively of gold and not richly studded with gems as Kundavai's gift. It's worth going through the early part of this inscription in its entirety. The sacred armlet contained 14 ounces of gold. It then contained 441 diamonds set into it. 20 pure diamonds, 406 diamonds with smooth edges, five flat diamonds with smooth edges, 10 square diamonds with smooth edges, 54 large and small rubies, eight halahalam of superior quality, 17 halahalam, 19 smooth rubies, two bluish rubies, eight unpolished rubies. 68 strung pearls, similarly categorized according to quality, ending with pearls that had been polished while still adhering to their shells. 
The inscription proceeds to give us an insight into the high cost of the gemstones. It tells us that the gold in the armlet cost 180 coins, but that the entire armlet, together with the stones, cost 1,250 coins, indicating that the gold was less than a tenth of the total cost of the jeweled armlet. If we translate this into today's terms, the pair of armlets would cost $243,000. If you're wondering why you're looking at a parrot pendant, it's because Kundavai also gave to the same bronze Uma a gold parrot with eyes studded with precious stones that would perch on her hand. Not as lavishly inset with gems as this parrot pendant, but certainly larger in size. Court officials joined royalty in giving jewelry to temple bronzes. Raja Raja had a Brahmin general, and he gave to the temple a bronze of Shiva's half-woman. He then adorned it with 11 items of jewelry, ranging from a crown to anklets. A special favorite to adorn bronzes of the saints were necklaces made of the sacred Rudraksha bead from the dried fruit of a species of evergreen tree. Rajaraja's temple officer commissioned bronze images of the three saints, Samandar Appar and Sundarar, you see Appar here, and gave each a necklace made of these beads set as usual in gold. All gem-studded items, including ruby anklets like this, provide the exact number of precious stones and their precise quality in the manner we've just encountered. Let's pause for a moment to consider the reason for such detailed recording. While Raja Raja's royal records are exceptionally comprehensive, it seems to have been standard practice for large wealthy temples to carry inscribed lists of the gold and silver ornaments and of the gold and silver ritual vessels in their possession, with notations on the weight of each item. It would seem that these inscribed records constitute an inventory of temple jewelry that could easily be consulted when thefts occurred. And that they occurred, we know from several inscriptions. In one temple, the embezzlement of jewelry was discovered during an inspection of the temple treasures by a panel of three, three people, the sacred works officer of the temple and two military generals. Six priests were responsible for this theft. One of the six priests was unable to pay back his share. And we read that he sold his right of performing temple worship for four and a half days each month until the amount he owed was recovered. Clearly, temp performing temple puja was a fairly lucrative business. Like other inscriptions, these two would have been written on palm leaf and stored, but haven't existed, haven't um, survived. And occasionally, such inventories are also found on copper plates. The Cholas put in place an amazing bureaucracy to effectively manage all aspects of the administration of their kingdom. 
from the numerous records I could share with you, I've chosen to give you an idea of the checks and balances in place to handle the refashioning of the jewelry that is so intimately connected with our bronzes. And by the way, accountability was required at each stage, each level of the process. In the year 1042, a large and wealthy temple decided to create major new items of jewelry to adorn three sets of the temple's bronzes using gold already accumulated in the temple. The three bronzes were similar to the pieces I show you here. The order formulated by the Emperor Rajendra's Officer of Sacred Works was communicated to a temple committee that included the temple priests, record keepers, temple accountants. They formed a new committee of 16 persons specifically to oversee the creation of the jewels or the recreation of the jewels. And each of these 16 persons was identified by name and designation. The 16 included two accountants, the sacred works officer, a military officer, two temple priests, an arbitrator, two members of the security force, and Lord Shiva's own accountant. Who is Lord Shiva's own accountant? <laughs> Well, Shiva's own accountant is Saint Chandesha, who features prominently in the context of temple monies, and especially in the transactions in which the temple functioned as a banking institution, loaning cash at 12.5% interest. The original story of the saint speaks of his occupation as a cowherd, his intense devotion to Shiva, his zealous protection of a mud Shiva linga that he built afresh each day and lustrated with milk from the cows in his charge. He holds in, in the crook of his arm the sacred axe of Shiva that miraculously replaced his mundane cowherd staff. During the Chola period, Chandesha acquired the role of divine financial agent in Shiva temples, and it's in his name that temple transactions were conducted. Let me give you an example. Raja Raja's sister, Kundavai, gave an endowment of cash to the Tanjavur temple to ensure the regular worship of the four bronzes that she had set up. The expenses of this worship were to be met from the interest that accrued on the loan of this money at the going rate of 12.5%. Kundavai's money was loaned to the inhabitants of an entire series of villages, and interest was to be paid annually to the temple treasury. It could be in the form of rice or as cash. And notice how the inscription phrases it. The loan has been received not from the temple or from Kundavai, but from Chandeshwara, Chandesha, described here as the first servant of the Supreme Lord. Likewise, the interest is to be paid not to the temple, but to Chandesha. And similar language is used in an entire series of inscriptions in which the temple lent money to a variety of clients, always at the interest rate of 12.5%. Chandesha's role proved to be one of great importance and a mini temple 
to enshrine his image was built within the compound of all large temples. Here you see his small shrine in the four major royal temples of the Cholas. And to this day, Chandesha is considered the guardian of a Shiva temple. Devotees leaving the temple premises stop before his shrine. It's along the exit route and they clap their hands above their heads. This is not to applaud the divine financial agent, but to demonstrate that their hands are indeed empty and that they are not removing any temple property. <laughs> we haven't spent any time looking at the stone sculptures in the niches of the great temple at Tanjavu. Why not? Because these over-life-size images are somewhat disappointing by comparison with the bronzes created by the Tirvangadu master. How could this be? Are we not speaking of the great temple whose royal patron Raja Raja surely employed the finest stone sculptors of the day? Well, let's compare just a few images of identical or similar iconography. Shiva as the begging lord. The stone image seen on its own is powerful, but when compared with the master's bronze, it seems a bit flabby, with thighs and shoulders that are too broad. What about Shiva's half-woman? A little better, perhaps, but the stone face is too broad and the body lacks the dynamic contrapposto of the bronze. One more comparison, this time of Shiva standing with Uma. There's a certain stiffness and heaviness about the stone images, an almost stolid quality compared to the bronze. I see the explanation for this as lying in the vast enlargement of the stone images to fit into niches close to nine feet tall. The artists were no longer able to eye their images as a single piece as they had done in earlier temples one-sixth the size. Instead, they had to work on it in sections, squatting upon that block of stone to carve it, as is the customary practice in India. In the process, they appear to have lost out on the overall proportionality. Each section might seem fine on its own, but when it all came together, it sort of just didn't come together. By contrast, the wax modeler, creating images about three feet high, was able to fine tune his image to a level of perfection. I take you back to Tiruvangadu, whose master created not just images of the gods, but also those of the saints. And among his creations is this portrayal, 24 inches high, of the simple hunter saint Kannapan, who is single-minded in his devotion to God Shiva, unaware of social taboos of any type. Since he felt Shiva would be hungry, he took him raw pork from the wild boar he had just hunted. Shiva would be thirsty after the meal. Since his own hands were filled with the pork, he carried water for Shiva in his own mouth. And when the eye on the linga emblem of Shiva began to tear, Shiva was testing him, he plucked out his own eye to replace it. 
Our master has portrayed the empty eye socket of Kanapan and similarly shown us the extracted eye that the saint offers in his right palm to God Shiva. No other portrayal of this saint has captured so effectively in a single image the magnitude of the hunter's gift. Noteworthy too is this master's portrayal of human devotees, whether of a young novice or a pot-bellied Brahmin general. But let's move on to a practical issue, the issue of affordability. Not all would-be donors of festival bronzes had the wherewithal to commission their images from the Thiruvangadu master. We saw earlier that 12 persons combined their donations, almost a, found a, a, a form of crowdsourcing, uh, to be able to get the master to create the bronze of Uma and of the bull to complete the imagery of Shiva with the bull. And yet, devotional fervor demanded that other images be dedicated to the temple in order to enable an expanded festival cycle. Such donors probably commissioned their images from the master's chief apprentice, who created superior bronzes in the same style. But they lack the pizzazz, the vitality, the spark of our master. We'll look at just this one commission, a threesome group featuring God Subramanya, who is the younger son of Shiva and Uma, flanked by his two consorts. The God stands 36 and a half inches high, as imposing in size as the master's Shiva with the bull, with his two consorts just six inches shorter. Wearing a tall crown, the richly adorned four-armed God stands in graceful contrapposto with weight resting on his right foot. The elegant flanking goddesses are posed almost as mirror images of each other with minor distinctions. They're fine bronzes following a decorative scheme similar to that of the master. Yet, look at the exquisite smile on the face created by the master and the somewhat flabby jawline on that modeled by his apprentice. And we might make a closely similar comment about the images of the two consorts. The work of the apprentice is remarkably good, but it just cannot match the master's perfection. For the last five minutes of our time together this afternoon, I propose to transport you to the shallow waters of the Gulf of Mannar that lies between India and Sri Lanka in order to address the Chola obsession with pearls. These waters sustain major pearl oyster fisheries that yield all manner of pearls, from tiny seed pearls to those the size of a green pea. They were known as early as the first century, both to Pliny's natural history and to the unknown Greek sailor who authored the log book, The Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. The southwest monsoon annually swept the oyster beds that lay along the Pandya coast of India, close to Lanka, where they settled at the mouth of the Aruvi River at Mannar, free of the dangers of ocean currents. The northeast return monsoon currents often dislodged the oyster beds, moving some back towards India into Pandian waters. 
in these shallow waters, divers dived for pearl oysters. And I quote a 1902 account, their backs gracefully arched and their heels above their heads, while their generally long hair waves gracefully behind them, supported by the water. Writing in, an, in, in 1902, an innocent age free of the burden of political correctness, Captain Legg commented admiringly, no European diver in a diving dress can compete with a naked native. The Cholas had a long fixation, both with the Pandyas and their allies, the rulers of Lanka. Access to the pearl fisheries that lay strategically between Pandya and Lankan territory was surely one major reason for this fixation. In his earliest inscription, Parantaka Chola, who was in power for 50 years from 905 to 955, assumed the title, he who captured Madurai. By 917, he enlarged the title to, he who captured Madurai and Lanka. In the year 939, his naval general made a gift to a coastal Shiva temple as thanksgiving for his successful campaign in Sri Lanka and his defeat of the Sinhala king. Battles with Sri Lanka were a regular feature of Chola polity and they remained so throughout the four centuries of Chola rule, the centuries that also witnessed a passion to adorn the bronze images of their deities with pearls. Look, for instance, at this pearl-studded crown from a temple treasury. It's intended for the goddess. For the goddess, when she wears her hair in a knot on the left side of her head. Inscriptions speak of several items of jewelry that consist almost exclusively of pearls, including necklaces and earrings and nose rings. More importantly, each gold Sri Chanda ornament, and several are mentioned in the inscriptions, contained on average 700 to 900 pearls. Each of dozens of pearl bracelets contained 350 to 560 pearls. One gold diadem given by Raja Raja to an image of Shiva had 13,328 pearls, round pearls, roundish pearls, polished pearls, small pearls, nimbalam, payetam, ambumudu, crude pearls, twin pearls, sapati, sakatu, pearls of brilliant water, pearls of red water. Each of nine decorative belts that Raja Raja gave to adorn the hips of bronze images was strung with anywhere from 1,500 to 5,600 pearls. The pearls in this one royal inscription that records the gift of nine belts and one diadem add up to 31,458 pearls. Leave aside jewelry that royalty and aristocracy themselves might have worn, but we should note that the lavish gifts carried by the diplomatic missions that Rajaraja and Rajendra sent to the Chinese court included vast quantities of pearls that could come from nowhere else but Sri Lanka's Gulf of Mannar. The desire to control the pearl oyster fisheries of the Gulf of Mannar is an overlooked reason and surely one critical reason for the Chola fixation with Sri Lanka. 
this quest for pearls is an ideal segue into next week's examination of the bronzes created in the Buddhist island of Sri Lanka during the 70-year Chola occupation. Bronzes that raise interesting issues of citation and adaptation. And we will also explore the Chola desire to exert a degree of control over the silk route of the ocean that translated into naval raids into island Sumatra, which was a literal power known for its experienced mastery over the forces of the ocean. It all revolved around access to the South China Sea. Interesting, isn't it, that such access has become a contemporary concern today of nations across the world, not just of India and Southeast Asia. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.